Hey guys, one of the rare repeat guests because that's how incredible he is. Today I've got back with us a physician and addiction as expert, Dr. Drew Pinsky. How you doing, Drew? I don't think I've ever been described as incredible, but thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> the that means, incredible part is just spending time with you, sir. That's that's what I like. You are way too kind. Uh, let me just read some of your bio stuff. Uh, you could follow Dr. Drew's work on drdrew.com, which includes popular podcasts such as Dr. Drew After Dark, The Adam and Drew Show. By the way, I'll be on Adam Carolla's show when the book comes out in uh, oh, later this summer, as well as, his, as, as well as his live streaming shows, Ask Dr. Drew and Dose of Dr. Drew, with links available at drdrew.tv. Uh, you are a contributor on Fox LA uh, with uh, Alex Michelson and a regular host on MTV's Teen Mom. That, do all of these things still hold true? You know, the Fox News thing I was doing every night uh, locally here in Los Angeles for about a year, and now I just contribute now and then. But, okay, uh, gotcha. That was a lot of fun. We were just sort of trying to keep people up on what was uh, the craziness. You know, we, it was sort of a, it was, it was marketed as a COVID special every night. So, got you. Uh, you used to be a regular on the Dr. Oz show since yep. it no longer is on air and what and you were the eagle on the masked singer on fox yeah. your books include the new york times bestseller the mirror effect how celebrity narcissism is seducing america and cracked putting broken lives together again did i cover some of the key highlights or do you want to add anything before we get um, going? you know i've just been on tv forever i've done lots of tv <laughs> all, all different stripes I, this sort of i i was the other day was looking at uh <laughs> I was looking at, I, I used to try to keep up a, you know, a sort of a, a CV of appearances and stuff. And I just thought I have been on every damn show. There's no show I haven't been on. Just nothing. So I've been on it. You find me everywhere. <laughs> now I wanted maybe the most important highlight in your CV is yeah. that you made it to the back of this book. Yes. There were seven very illustrious blurbers who were kind enough to blurb for me, but on the back of the book, here comes Megan Kelly. Here comes the gorgeous and delightful Dr. Drew. And here comes Dr. Jordan Peterson. So thank you I for that feel, lovely blurb. I feel extremely privileged to be part, blurbing amongst those blurbers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what I thought we would do... As, I mean, as you we, said to me once, como ça se fait? By the way, for the people who don't know, vous parlez français, Dr. Drew, correct? Oui, un peu. Oui, oui. Un petit peu. Well... Plus qu'un petit, mais, mais je ne parle pas bien. Right. Oh, il faut qu'on améliore notre accent. Oui, améliorer ça. Et, et maîtriser ma, ma grammaire. <laughs> so we, I just said we might need to ameliorate our accent. And yep. then uh, Dr. Drew added and maybe improve my grammar. French yeah. grammar is not easy. As, uh, <laughs> as I can attest seeing now my children. I mean, I learned French before I did English. So it's kind of like a mother tongue to me. But yeah. now that I haven't been immersed in French in my professional life, and uh -huh. I see some of their conjugations, and so I'm like, oh, thank God I finished with all that business, right? Not only that, I don't know if this holds true in, in Canada, but in France, they speak three different languages. Spoken French is three different things. And they, you know, they have the Academy Francaise, which is the language police, yes. which uh, Richelieu set up 500 years ago. And the other two versions are sort of rebellions against that, including 
in addition to their slang, which they call argo, there is a pig Latin they do. They inverse things. <laughs> it's like I say, like, no wonder I don't understand French when I go over there. Well, it's funny you say this because my wife has the linguistic chameleon ability to switch a different French accent depending on you know with, with whom she's interacting so since region. exactly so yeah. she can speak kind of an international french which really rings nicely to my ear because that's how i speak it yeah. but then she can go into what's called joie like really really hardcore quebecer which doesn't ring nicely to my ear no, and so so probably one of the only not fights but the only things <laughs> where we have a little spiciness between us i'll turn around to her when she's speaking that i go what the hell was that She's like, come on, they won't take me seriously if I don't speak their language. I can't do that. I need a tutor. I think I'm going to call your wife. Just just 15 minutes on the phone would really help me. <laughs> Please. Sounds good. Okay, so what I thought we would do is take your... That makes me happy, by the way. Oh, they, what a segue. That's exactly where I was going to get to. So I wanted to maybe start off our conversation linking some of the stuff that I discuss in, in my forthcoming book on happiness with some of the stuff that you've spent decades, you know, treating yeah. and dealing with addiction. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. question one, does being happy serve as somewhat of an inoculation against the proclivity of becoming addicted? It depends what you mean by happiness. Okay. Uh, let's, let's how, cause people oftentimes we, we, particularly in this country, we are so, you know, we are given, uh, you know, the, the right to pursue happiness. And I, we have taken that word and gone crazy places with it. So let's us, why don't we define happiness first? How do you define it? Well, there are, of course, in the academic literature, there are all kinds of ways by which we can parse it. Let's use the most colloquial understanding of happiness. I wake up in the morning with a sense of existential well-being. My well life of yeah, so well-being, okay, because because yeah. we in this country, I think we have distorted it into a, what is called hedonic happiness right. or euphoria. And we're supposed to be euphoric all the time. We're supposed to be gloriously happy with everything all the time. And that's just nobody. That's not, it's not, in fact, that is not good. I think it was Schopenhauer that said, I go from satisfaction to desire back to, you know, satisfaction and then back to desire. And if you, if your euphoric uh, pursuit is what you're after, it'll just be one thing after another. You'll never be fulfilled. But well being, uh, I, I think, is exactly the right place to start. And, you know, in order to have experienced well-being, you have to not be in extreme pain. You have to have basic needs met. You have to not be hungry and distressed or your life being endangered in some way. It's hard to feel good in those kinds of situations. So sort of it's a given that you have to be like, okay, in order to start to feel well-being. But beyond that, uh, I, I sort of like the term flourishing. You know, how does how is human flourishing contribute to well-being? And to an to to your question I, there yes uh genes are not de destiny uh addiction is a genetic is underpinned by a genetic disorder 60 percent of addiction is accounted for on the basis of genetics alone but of course 40 percent is environment and what are those environmental triggers usually some need to regulate uh, typically it's a regulatory imbalance Oftentimes, it's childhood trauma with carrying that pain and dysregulation forward. 
oftentimes without people really even being aware of it. But if you are experiencing well-being, you're well-regulated, you're you're not likely to continue to pursue a substance and certainly not going to pursue really serious substances. Um, you know, for instance, opiate addicts are usually trying to, to uh, avoid psychic pain. They carry pain with them that they're often not aware of. Alcoholics sometimes just like alcohol a lot, and you can still trigger alcoholism with certain genetic burdens. But to some extent, yes, well-being is a is one of the inoculations against this condition. Got you. Now, in 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 my book, as you know, you 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 look through it before blurbing it. Yeah, I love it. Thank you so much. Uh, I I discuss various correlates with happiness that have been studied. You know, happiness yeah. and religiosity, happiness yeah. and uh, you know a good uh, marriage. Uh, you know, happiness in different cultural settings, uh, happiness and being you know uh, uh, feeling content at work. Yeah. Of all of the possible correlates to happiness. Is there one or two that you would consider most likely? So my first question was, does happiness inoculate you against addiction? Yes. But now I'm drilling down into the granular correlates yeah. of happiness. Yeah. You know, if I am married, does that reduce my chances of being addicted? If I am religious, does that? So what are your thoughts on those? So I, I think the component, the, the contribution of religion is more something we'd call spiritual fulfillment. And that is a really challenging landscape for me because it's so many different things to so many different people. Let me just say it's important, as I'm sure, you know, people reading your book will discover it's it's important. And to some extent, it is includes a relationship with a higher power, which is what I want to say that really, for me, the key ingredient in happiness is relational. Yes. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned marriage. That chapter really caught me, by the way. And uh, I, and I think it caught your wife's attention, too. I think she felt pretty good about it. And uh, so did mine, by the way. Uh, but but it, it's not just a happy, stable marriage. It is the capacity for entering a relational frame that is close and intimate. And, and that is not an easy task for a lot of people. Uh, forget choosing the right person and sort of navigating, you know, life together and all these very complex and difficult things, frankly, just the beginning phenomenon of entering the frame of relationship and doing it in, in a way where you are fully vulnerable and open, i.e. intimate, very hard for people these days. Um, and so I do think uh, the, the one thing I would say is the key underpinning is some sort of relational something. Uh, it can be with a higher power. Uh, I happen to believe it needs to be with other human beings, but yes. I've certainly seen people who are fulfilled without it. And, uh, and I personally, I, I kind of back into spirituality through relationships with human beings. I really feel like that's where I see spirituality. These, this thing I agree. That, this thing that people co-create, we call a relationship, is a wholly separate entity, only separate substance from you and me. And that is where you and me are deeply affected by each other, but it is a separate thing that we create together. And that thing has real, real um, transcendent value. Well, so let me mention something that just happened today. Earlier, I posted a tweet, I, I don't know if you saw it, where I was, you know, 
you know sharing publicly my my affection uh, for you uh, as a as a somewhat new friend right last couple of years and then Jay Batasharia, who happens to be one of the other blurbers of my book. I, I can't believe that I'm fortunate enough to get the best. these, these kinds of incredible people to, to blurb my book. Uh, he writes, you know, unknown to both of us, well, you know, like a lovely sentence. And in that small moment, even though it was in a public setting, I felt an incredible communion with two guys whom a couple of years ago I didn't know who are... Yeah, I can't imagine my life being as rich as it currently is if I didn't have the opportunity to meet such people. So your point about relations is is completely right. And as a matter of fact, it is supported, as you know, by a lot of very serious science. Robert Waldinger, who is coming on my show this Friday, Amazing. who is the director of the, I think, the longest longitudinal study. I think it's called the Harvard Adult Development Study. Yeah. He quotes uh, findings, uh, which I'll mention that you could add to it, uh, Drew, also as a physician, that if you take people's cholesterol scores when they're 50, and then you and then another metric is you look at the quality of their relationships. Yeah. When they're 80, the quality of the relationships is a better predictor of their health outcomes than their cholesterol scores at age 50. Th that makes very good sense to me, and, and it, and I'm sure you can really follow that across the lifespan. Uh, and you know, it's only the last 20 years or so we've started looking at adverse childhood experiences as a scale that, and it, we, and we backed into it, even though those of us working in mental health, it was immensely obvious, but they backed into it through the medical system. They started noticing that people with three or five or seven adverse childhood experiences had worse health outcomes. Shocking. Look, at the very minimum, being able to manage impulses is a regulatory uh, challenge. And regulation happens in the intersubjectivity is how the brain builds regulation. Because all of this we're talking about, I keep talking about regulation, begs the question, how do people develop a regulatory system normally? And that is with other brains, other brains focusing on us, offering us metabolized emotions alongside the emotions they attune of our own. That's how we build regulation. And that happens throughout the lifespan. So if I'm having trouble managing my appetite and I don't have good relationships, it's going to be really, I'm going to be extra challenged trying not to, to eat healthy things. I'm going to want to fill my discontent and my dysregulation with the glazed donuts. Beautiful. I, I recently had Asim Malhotra on my show. I don't know. Do you know who that is? Oh, yeah. Okay, I right. I, I think I found him first. I think I was uh, a first to put him Oh, on. well, there you go. Uh, I was following your uh, glorious suit. Uh, well, I asked him on the show because I said, okay, well, fine. It, it, I understand that relationships have a positive benefit on our health. But what is what are the proximate mechanisms that result in that? Right, it can't be booga booga. It also yeah, has to be yeah. it has to be you know grounded in some material reality. Yeah. And his explanation, he said that there is now some growing evidence that suggests that it works through kind of the inflammation argument, right? That that having good relationships somehow serves as a you know it reduces 
the likelihood of an inflammatory response. Does that does that sound reasonable to you? Well, we know that it reduces central nervous system cortisol. Mm -hmm. And cortisol is a, a marker, a surrogate for inflammation, really. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll up that with, a, with, another, with another mechanism, which is our autonomic nervous system is the source of regulation. Feelings come from the body. Bodies come in, bodily-based feelings come through the vagus nerve. That's the, that is the afferent system from our body. That's something not taught in medical school. We were taught, yeah, it slows the heart down, affects the uh, acid secretion by the stomach. That's about it. You know, no, it's something like 78% of is afferent going back to the brain. And that's all kinds of information that really, really, we really don't even understand how it works. All those different nervous plexi, um, you know, over our abdomen and our chest. It's a, like these peripheral brains we have in our, in our body, but they're sending information back through the vagus nerve. And that is the regulatory system that at its core is how emotional regulation works is by regulating bodily based expression of uh, the autonomic nervous system. And of course, if we are in a fight or flight response all the time, that is unhealthy. That is a stress on the system. At very minimum, that increases shear forces on arteries at the at the uh, sort of branching points, which increases cholesterol de deposition and you know narrowing of the arteries and all that. That's just that's just one of many mechanisms. So I I would put a lot of it on the autonomic nervous system and its regulation. Beautiful. One of the things that I try to do in the book, as 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 you know is I try to have the right melange of, you know, personal stories. You know, here's my experience navigating the, you know, Mount Happiness, <laughs> linking it to ancient wisdoms, and uh, then linking, like linking it to contemporary science, but not just, you know, behavioral science and positive psychology, also looking for things like physiological markers and medical yeah. markers that link happiness so you get the full story. So one, one set of studies that I love, and I, I don't know if you remember them from the book, is the, the work on job control. And you, you mentioned just a few minutes ago, cortisol levels. So uh, Michael Marmot, I don't know if you know, if you know that, if you know, does that ring a bell? No, don't know. Well, he, he's a social epidemiologist. So he studies uh, things like how does, uh, where you are in a organizational hierarchy. Oh, I've seen stuff like this. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fantastic, yeah, right? Yeah, Drew? So yeah. it comes, for, so just to give the background. So Robert Sapolsky has done all that work the neurobiologist at Stanford with uh, baboon society. They're very hierarchical. And then the top baboon will have lower cortisol levels. You might think that he has higher cortisol levels because no, he has higher testosterone. Exactly. He has higher testosterone, lower, whereas the lower down the rung you go, the yeah. higher the cortisol levels. So Marmot took this idea, which by the way, is, is covered in, in, in one of his books called the status syndrome. Mm. And he demonstrated that when you look at specific you know, well-structured organizations, the, the guy who's at the top, the CEO has much lower cortisol levels than, you know, the, the one at the lowest rank. One of the mechanism that causes that stress and that I try to kind of really hammer on is whether you have temporal freedom in your job or not. So let, let me explain in my personal context, right? Just be, about 20 minutes before you and I were chatting, I was on my stationary bike outside at 75 degrees and I'm sweating it out. 
Now, I still might end up working 14 hours today. So it's not that I'm not working, but I'm in control of my time. Now I'm going to have a great conversation with Drew. Then I might go for a coffee with my wife. Then I might work on my next book till midnight, but I'm in control. Whereas the person who doesn't have that control yeah. has to go to the bathroom when it is mandated by the union. So do you, do you buy that idea that our cortisol levels are ultimately linked to how much temporal freedom we have in our jobs. I just think freedom generally is an interesting topic when it pertains to that uh, freedom and sense of uh, personal uh, efficacy. Yeah. Uh, I think both would, uh, you know, I, I think it's, you're just, you're just zeroing in on the fact that you are in control of your destiny throughout the day, rather than, than somebody else's under somebody else's thumb. And, uh, you know, the, you know, personal create creativity, efficacy, all these things are extremely important psychological principles for happiness. So true, because actually in the book, I basically are when, you know, I try to be humble when I'm offering prescriptions where I, I don't say do these things and I guarantee you happiness, but rather right. I say, look, if you adopt these principles or adopt these mindsets, it will increase your probability of reaching happiness. Right. And so when it comes to discussing jobs, what I argue specifically, because you mentioned the word just now create, you know, being creative, I argue that jobs that afford you the possibility to instantiate your creative impulse yeah. All other things equal are going to provide you with greater purpose and meaning. Now, that doesn't mean that the insurance adjuster is not living a dignified professional life and we need him or her, but they can't be waking up in the morning, you know, rubbing their hands with glee and saying, I am so excited that I'm an, a, you know, a insurance adjuster. But yeah. when you are a chef or an architect or an author, you're immersed in the creative process that's got to increase your chances of happiness. And if you are uh, a job, you have a job that is reasonably um, fulfilling in some way or another, a lot of people uh, continue to use that job to pursue happiness by giving them financial ability on the other side to pursue, again, hobbies or whatever ex creative experiences that do more, more dramatically impact happiness. Yeah, that's beautiful because actually yesterday I was on a show that's, that hasn't aired yet and the, the gentleman asked me exactly to your point, but what if, I, what if I'm bound by a particular job that doesn't afford me a creative out, outlet? And so I exactly what you just said. I said, well, how about instead of then spending five hours watching TV after you leave your job, take yeah. that ceramics course that you had always hoped to be taking. You know, you became a pediatrician because your dad is a pediatrician and his dad is a pediatrician, but you really wanted to be a ceramics artist. Well, that's fine, but you could still go sign up at the Lifelong Learning Institute and take that ceramics course yeah. and hence channel your creativity. Yeah, or go fishing, whatever that means to you. I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, and I mean, different things, different people create a that experience. And uh, it is important, though, to, to pay attention to it. Beautiful. Okay. Earlier, you mentioned uh, that you were talking about one of the mechanisms that uh, we were discussing. And you said, well, you know, we don't learn that at medical school. Yeah. So that serves as a perfect segue to uh, my last guest prior to you is a gentleman by the name of Randy Nesse, N-E-S-S-E, -S -S -E, which I would love to connect you, got you two together. Uh, Randy Nesse is a psychiatrist by training, but his big a, you know, a claim to fame in academia has been that he's the one of the two pioneers of evolutionary medicine. Mm. The idea of and the reason why I'm mentioning is because I know that we both are you know big fans of applying evolutionary thinking to all sorts of contexts. 
And so he has been trying assiduously for close to four decades to increase the exposure that medical students receive to the evolutionary lens. And alas, he hasn't been very successful. What can we do? Can you offer any advice, whether it be to Randy Nesse or anybody else who's listening, how we can try to Darwinize medical school in a, in a more effective manner? I really, this is going to be a sound like I'm um, sidestepping the question, but the fact that it had not has not started at the undergraduate level is shocking to me that that if you you have to take a certain amount of biology as part of the requisites for medical school if that is not being taught through the basic i mean i you know i i did i had a formal biological training i was a biology major in college and I, biology and evolution were the identical words to me uh, <laughs> any any question in biology I had to consult evolutionary thought. And by the way, because I went to a liberal arts college, everything was taught to me in a historical context. Here's what Faraday was thinking when he came up with these equations. And here's what Newton thought. And here's what he came up with next. And here's how he went from these derivations. It just, you know, it just took me through the history of the thinking. So I was always connected back to something like Darwin. The fact that that is not being taught and kids are just getting these rote memorization of biochemical pathways, that is disgusting. Yeah, uh, it, it is it is missing the point of, of you know, what we're doing in biology. Well, and by I, the way, I, I noticed that there don't seem to be even taught the scientific method. Indeed. They don't, they don't seem to, I, I, I'll, I'll ask, you know, have you, do, do you know the scientific method? And they don't really, they... And they've never heard of a null hypothesis and yeah. basic, simple kinds of, uh, uh, you know, chi-squares and things of an analyzing the validity or invalidity of a null hypothesis. Nope. Uh -uh. Well, so what build off anything if you don't have that to start with? Well, I, I mean, it's one thing that evolutionary thinking not be coupled, in, you know, in biology in general. It is the framework that unifies biology across all units of analysis, whether it yes. be at the ecological level or individual yes. level or yes. cellular or molecular. Okay. But now try to go now into the behavioral sciences, Oh yeah. whether it be in economics or political science or anthropology. Yeah. I mean, anthropology does have a subset of biological anthropologists, but largely speaking, they've been completely overtaken by the cultural anthropologists who reject biology. I'm housed in a business school, try to apply evolutionary thinking to understand consumer psychology, uh, economic decision-making. People look at you as though you're some kind of quack monster. What kind of pseudoscience bullshit is it to apply evolutionary theory to study the human mind? Well, what do you mean? How, how else do you think that the human mind came to be? But it is still today, uh, Drew, you it's, know I'm, I'm, I've been almost a professor for 30 years it is still a very contentious statement to argue that the human mind has evolved through the forces of evolution. That, that's insane. Sorry. I'm sorry that you were putting up with that. But I do think there's a way in. But by, by backing in through cultural evolution, right? how is it that cultures evolve, but brains don't? How is that possible? Right. Okay, how could that? I mean, and, and, and by the way, when you want to look at the behavior of ants, don't you look at the pheromones and the neurosystems yeah. and things that that, he, that are being affected by the context in which they're operating? They evolve into different kinds of ants because of those things. They, they literally change their biology 
Yeah, can I give you their answer? The, the answer of what I call the flat earthers of the human mind, which is almost every single one of my colleagues, they would say that's precisely what differentiates us from every other species. It's a form of religious thinking, right? What makes us human is that we transcend our biology. So Dr. Drew, don't tell me about ant pheromone. Don't tell me about cortisol level of baboons. That's why they're animals and we're not. We transcend so, our biology. So my we're next cultural. question would be, how do I practice medicine then? How do I, how do I do, how is there such a thing as medical science where we look at the patterns of biological processes that happen to human beings? How's, how's that? And I can tell you when certain things happen, they affect the brain certain ways. Brains get sick just like bodies, and bodies can make brains sick. How's that possible? Well, I'm so glad. Possible? How am I? Am I? Am I talking nonsense? We better get rid of medical schools. That's it. Dad. Yeah, they're, they got to get no I, more. I, I'm going to come back to evolution and medicine in a second, but your the the way you just framed your rebuttal is a perfect segue. So let me ask you this: How is it possible for a physician and two gynecologists? And I just did a sad truth on this. So I, I, I there are two sad truths that I want you to respond to. One, I know this one. I know where you're going, but you know where I'm. Okay, so there is yeah, a physician ahead. who's not a gynecologist, and two other gynecologists, all three of whom agreed that it is shocking how simpleton current science is in not recognizing that Dylan Mulvaney is absolutely. This is, by the way, a, a male. He's got a penis and testicles that anyone who thinks that they are not, that that person is not a woman needs to go back to medical school. Now I interacted, and then I also had a anesthesiologist uh, engage with me. I did another sad truth where she said, well, I went to medical school and you didn't. And I can confirm that, you know, some, you know, women have nine inch penises, something to that effect. So how is it possible? Now, I'm asking this as the person who wrote the parasitic mind right here. So I know all about parasitized brains. But let me ask you, mm. how could a person who went to medical school utter such nonsense? Help us, Dr. Drew. I, I, I don't know what they're wanting. I, I will agree that words like woman and man go bleed into gender. And gender is a topic that is extremely difficult to navigate. And if they want to talk about genderness, go ahead. But if we want to talk about reproductive biology, I only know one way to talk about that. I, I so, don't know. How so well. you confirm that men have penises and women have vaginas. Male. I'm asking a Male. medical expert here because, it, by it, the way, the what people that produce lots of gametes that are small with high levels of testosterone that start in utero are male. They, typically, they're male. They may or may not have a penis, by the way. I mean, the external genitalia can be ambiguous. There can be all kinds of stuff. True. But that does not make that thing less a male what they'll point at is things we used to call like testicular feminization yes. which was is a male that doesn't have the receptors for androgens and therefore has a female phenotype yeah we can talk about genotypes and phenotypes and then we can talk about gender but let's not confuse all those things i think people try to obfuscate these things to sort of i don't know make a point or something keep them really clean and clear and then we can all talk so here's my explanation from the parasitic mind as to why they do that. Okay. Because in this, so 
I argue that all of these idea pathogens, postmodernism, you know, biophobia, the fear of using biology to explain human phenomena, social constructivism, all of these idea pathogens share one thing in common, and that is they wish to uh, remove, you know, have freedom from the shackles of reality. Now, why? Because they're pursuing some noble goal. And in the service of that noble goal, if I have to murder and rape truth, so be it. So they take on a consequentialist ethic. So I need to be compassionate and kind towards trans people. Gender dysphoria does exist. We've documented it for a very long time. I, I hope you would be. Exactly. And therefore, in their orgiastic foe and misplaced empathy, they then say, all bets are off. I'm willing to murder truth in the service of that noble goal of having more empathy. Well, That's grotesque. And you're 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 getting into this. It overlaps with these theoretical frames in post-structuralism that maintain that all that subjectivity is the only reality, and objectivity is the domain of old racist white men, uh, as as is logic, and therefore of no value. Uh, and I don't know, we've done okay with that, you know, in terms of building rocket ships and things, um, and yeah. mapping the human genome and all of that, it required objectivity, open objectivity, extreme uh, lack of subjectivity, subjectivity gets involved. It adulterates everything. So I don't quite get it. What I find semi-comical is I listened to a French philosopher uh, a couple months ago and she was she was probably about my age and she was absolutely bewildered by the american preoccupation with philosophers that are seven nearly 100 years ago that the french dispensed with 50 years ago as irrelevant and as worthless just just word games rather than anything of meaning is this the Foucault, lacan derrida that that gang all those guys okay. all of them gobbledygook and Foucault did untold harm on the medical health system, on the mental health system. Just it just he he took the fundamental philosophy that all mental health conditions are caused by the context in which people are cared for, meaning the hospitals. Therefore, we must get rid of all the hospitals. They were there were several administrators in this country that took that philosophy, dismantled the healthcare system, and they were all disgorged to the, the nursing homes the prisons and the streets where they remain. Amazing. I don't know if we've discussed this the last time that you came on my show or maybe when I went on your show, but but even if that if it if we did discuss it, it's worth repeating. Do you I'm asking you to speculate here. Do you think that the Lacan, Foucault, Derrida types in the deep recesses of their private thoughts knew that they were full of shit? Or I, I have seen Chaussure in particular seemed to have his tongue deep in his cheek. They were playing word games. Yeah. And I think I agree. they were laughing to themselves. I would not put Lacan in that same group. But Derrida and Chaussure, I, I think they were playing word games. They were laughing their asses off. And the French caught up to it 50 years ago. And we have not. They are nearly, they're almost, they're certainly 70 years ago. We, it comes, we're coming in on 100 years ago that these people are considered relevant to today. It's bewildering. And they must serve some other function for people because it's not a great philosophical system.
So here's here's my thinking. So you, you know, you said they were saying it tongue in cheek. I, I think actually, and here I'm completely speculating. So I've got no evidence for this, but I think it's a reasonable hypothesis. I think that there was an evolutionary mechanism at play here, which is so I'm Jacques Derrida. Yes, I get up yes, in front I of an yes. Do you, do you know where I'm going with this? Yeah, I think so. Go ahead, finish it. Yeah. I, I think you're right. So I'm seeking status because That's I know right. that if I get status, I'm going to get the hot women. So yeah. now I get up in front of an audience and I start spewing gibberish. Now, here there's a great trick that happens. The audience has one of two choices. They can either say, I'm not understanding a word that he's saying because he's a charlatan, or I don't understand the word that he's saying because I'm too dumb and he's saying something very profound. And most people pick the latter. It, it's it's something in between that, I think. You know who, who tipped me off this was Rob Henderson. Do you know Rob? Oh, I do. Okay, you got to interview Rob. He's, he, I finally got to meet him in person. He's another <laughs> mensch amongst menches. You know what I mean? But between sure. you, Bacharya, and Rob Henderson, these are wonderful people with great stories and fantastic thoughts. Thank you. And he, I said, what, why? Why are they doing it? He said, it's just, it's a way to get published, essentially. It's a new way of thinking about things that people haven't done before. So I'm applying a new, a new, literally a new slide rule. Uh, and so I can think all these new great thoughts that haven't been thought for before, even though they may have no relevance to reality. Absolutely. A place to go. So it is about status. It is about job. It is about publishing. It is about just using your head in novel ways. Maybe something interesting will come of it. Certainly a lot of destruction has come from it. You know, I think his name, I'm, I'm trying to remember his first name. I think it's Colin Martindale. He's now passed away. I think it's Colin. I can't remember his exact name. I'll, I'll send you the link to the book uh, yeah. after. Uh, he proposed the theory about how art movements change. And he basically said that the selection pressure is simply novelty of the new form. So the new form can be complete bullshit, but as long as it's novel and unique, there are selection pressures for it to be picked. So in that sense, that fits with what Henderson is saying regarding the the you know the, what the postmodernists are doing. As long as I start saying some gibberish that nobody else has heard before, then it yeah. must be cool and new, and I'll sign up for it. Yeah, and it's a it's another lens that they're applying. It just they don't realize this lens is. <laughs> I don't know. Got some got some issues. Okay, <laughs> I want to things will come. But listen, I I always feel as though, you know, I'm sort of a uh, Hegelian. You know, it's like I believe that these things move forward, and although they eventually we get rid of all the bullshit, and we can synthesize it into something useful. Because look, there there are some, I think, some wonderful things being you know maintained. I think I think awareness of you know people's experiences and and racial biases and this is extremely important it should be top of mind look i've been i've been i think i told you this the other day i've been practicing diligently to um educate myself and to be careful of my perspective which is you know a white male in his 60s and that is my perspective and i can improve i and i and i you know what i think really broke through for me was reading um Frederick Douglass's uh, biographies and lectures. Oh, right, he, he it broke through for me. He he had a point of view where I was like, oh oh my god, I see, I get what he's talking about. I totally get it, and I did not include that in my repertoire before. And uh, my God, everyone, he is in, in this country. Uh, he is the fact that we don't, uh, you know, all this. There's all kinds of things we are teaching in schools right now. He should be right front and center because logic. Erudition, wonderful thought, 
important. To your point, I had Brian Kilmeade, whom you know from Fox. He was on my show a few months ago because he had he has a book on the relationship between Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. So it shocks me that more Americans don't know about Frederick Douglass, but yet we waste our time with Ibrahim Kendi. And Brian and I have gotten into a deep on, on this thing. Cause I, I, both of those guys I'm, I'm preoccupied with, and I've read lots of biographies on both of them. Um, and it, it, it Lincoln really backed. I, we're getting off the happiness topic here, my friend, but Lincoln, Lincoln was how I backed into sort of history and biography. I'm like, who is this guy on the penny? What, what, he looks, he's just some sort of myth figure to me. I, there's got to be a person there. And right. so I began reading and uh, read many, many, many biographies. And it was that through, well, it was actually through Grant that I was through Lincoln. I got into Grant and Grant, how I got into Frederick Douglass. Well, I coming back uh, in a historical way to happiness, I recently had on my show uh, Donald Robertson, who's a gentleman who is a cognitive behavior, behavior therapist, uh, who is very much steeped in Stoic philosophy. And yeah. he, he wrote a book called uh, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Oh, yeah. Marcus yeah. Aurelius. Great yeah. book, by the way. You should read it if you haven't. I think uh, I, I've li- leaped through it. I've been through it a little bit. Yeah, okay. And while I was reading uh, uh, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, it, it came to my, I was surprised to find out that Galen was the personal physician of Marcus Aurelius. So then I started doing a deep dive into, can I find the definitive biography on Galen? And it turns out that there is a woman, a historian of medicine at University of Georgia, who's written a book called The Prince of Medicine. I tried to get her on the show. She hasn't responded yet. It always pisses me off when someone doesn't respond. I mean, what? Of course. it makes no sense. But makes anyways, sense. so- and not because it's me writing to you, but just it's one colleague writing to another to have a conversation about your book. Why wouldn't you respond? But anyways, uh, so do you know anything about guys? I mean, these guys strike, strike me like these mythical creatures, you know, Galen, Hippocrates. Yeah. Have yeah. you have you done any deep, deep dives on these guys? No, I really not. I, I come across stuff, you know, along the way in sort of the Renaissance and Middle Ages and things. And there's always reference back to these guys, yeah. but I don't know much about them. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's too bad. So I want to come back for a second. I said that I would come back to evolution and medicine. So I want to follow one more line of thinking, and then we can get into some of the contemporary current events, not necessarily medical that we can talk about. So uh, are you familiar with the term biophilic architecture or evolutionary? No, No, tell me. So the idea basically, so biophilia is a term that was introduced by E.O. Wilson, the Harvard entomologist, Harvard you know, Harvard evolutionary biologist, uh, this innate need to interact with nature, right? Uh, so if you've got, so biophilic architecture basically is the idea that rather than trying to create buildings that, you know, maximize, uh, you know, the speed at which you put up the building or or, or minimize the cost of mm-hmm. putting up the building, you try to think about what are some ways by which having a biophilic environment uh, exposure to sunlight, sure. windows, greenery, sound Apple. of water. Yeah, How would that improve the experience as you navigate through internal spaces? Now, I'm going to link it in a second to you're going to see in medicine. So there are some studies, and I actually discuss a couple of them in 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 the happiness book. For example, there is a classic study in 1984 by Ulrich. I think it was either in science or nature. What he did is he took two groups of patients, exact same surgery, 
One of them were was placed in a room with a window. The other one without. Everything else was controlled for. All other things equal. Just that manipulation had an effect yeah. on people's you know trajectory. Yeah. So the question then to you, uh, Drew, is why is it that all restorative environments, whether it be when I go to see the physician, when I go to, to the hospital, anything, yeah. if I'm not already sick, I'm going to become, my soul is going to get sick yeah. because it's so ugly, dreary, and hellish. W what's going so on? So I, I can tell you the reality, which is I worked in a hospital that was fashioned after the what's called the life institute or something in connecticut which was a psychiatric hospital which was an old gothic central building with nursing stations and rooms and it needed you know, when you need that kind of supervision there was sort of a medical kind of a unit but most of it was cabins and sort of these these little satellite units with acres and acres of beautiful grounds for people to walk around in and lots of windows, everything had windows, windows, windows. And it was sort of connected to the environment of, of this facility. Everything was connected almost, it was more than homey, more than park-like. It was sort of, it felt therapeutic. It was, it was Zen-like. Uh, and it was clearly modeled, uh, you know, back in the day when they had much, not much else to do to people, but get them to kind of cool out right. and uh, stop drinking or to stop being manic and to kind of get some TLC and walk around the grounds and, you know, sit on your porch and, you know, then they'd stay for weeks or months. The problem with that is the, resources for medical care don't give a shit about that yeah. and they literally would tell us we don't care about your grounds that's your problem we'll give you what it, what we reimburse people to treat an acute manic episode whether it's in a cinder block or in these beautiful environments doesn't matter to us that's your problem good luck so then the only way to convince them that those kinds of interventions are necessary is to link it to the currency that they understand, which is literally monetary currency. If I can show you that you will stay in the hospital, whatever, something that affects your bottom line, then that could appeal to them. Otherwise, this sounds like hogwash aesthetic stuff. We're a serious medical establishment. We don't deal with that stuff. It, it, I'm, they might gloss it with that, but the reality is uh, here's what we pay for these things. And uh, the hospital down the street uh, has two, four patients in a room and they do it for less. So good on them. That's it. Period. It, yeah, it, wow. It's just do it. It's all everything in medicine now is do it for less, do it for less. Do it for, it, it's not, they're not paying attention to these kinds of things. You know, just last week, I think last Friday or the Friday before I had the co-authors of a book that just, I, I seem to be plugging a lot of people's books. I hope I get some, some of their royalty cuts. Uh, <laughs> there's a book called, I think you'd enjoy it, Drew, uh, your brain, uh, your brain on art, or let, let me just check what it's called. Hold on, I'm going to put it up here. I, I've 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 read a number of books like that. So so this one right here, yeah. and it's basically yeah. arguing exactly what we're talking about. Now, yeah. Just just put just artify the place. Okay. And, and by the way, we had art therapies. Nope, no more. Can't afford them. Really? Oh yeah. No, forget and, it. The, and from your experience, I mean, you may have not done the you know the the official scientific studies with the controls and so on, but did you get a sense that art therapy offered some some benefit that otherwise the, the, the outcomes to the psychiatric patient were abysmal and they didn't care they didn't care 
it's weird. I, I would get, I would, I would squeeze extra days out of hospitalization by scaring the reviewers with medical jargon because they knew nothing about medicine, but they claimed <laughs> infinite knowledge about psychiatry. And they were just some nurse sitting in a, not even a nurse necessarily, somebody sitting in a, a clerk in a room with a, with a diagnostic code book in front of them. And th that was it. This gives you that. And that's the end of it. And if you don't meet their criteria for continued stay, and you know, again, hard to measure it with psychiatric patients, how to objectify all the parameters that they needed objectified in a way that reflected the reality of the patient in care. So the, that and we're so here's how it works. Here's yeah. how it works. So patient leaves and kills himself. The insurance carrier goes, we don't practice medicine. There's Dr. Pinsky's name on the discharge. He discharged the patient. He's responsible. That's the game. So has have all those realities caused you to kind of feel cynical or disillusioned? I left, I left the field. I, between that and the opioid overprescribing, it was too much for me. I left it. Really? Couldn't run a program anymore. Yeah. Now, we but never made any money. We never made any money. It was just always a bad business to be done well. Do that to do addiction treatment done well is not a good business. But we it, we had a guy at the helm who was a recovering guy himself and it saw value in it and wanted as a you know just as an important community member to to provide excellent services for addiction recovery. Once once the uh, bottom liners came in, that was the end of that. Wow. Okay, so let's move now to a few current issues. Then we'll wrap up this part, and then I will ask you a question in part two, uh, yeah. only for subscribers. Uh, as a medical professional, and I understand you're not diagnosing him from afar, you're not his, uh, his, his physician, do we feel that it is a good idea for supposedly the most powerful country in the world to be uh, proposing as the next president Joe Biden, or does he look, at least from my layman's perspective, that his cognitive decline is very, very fast and precipitous? What are your thoughts on that, Drew? He, um, I mean, it's a loaded question, obviously. Um, he has done much better than I expected. Uh, In terms I, of his cognitive acuity? I, yes, I think he's done kind of well. G given what I thought I was seeing at the beginning, I thought we were in real trouble, and that did not progress in the manner I thought it would. So I'm relieved to tell you that I think he's done rather well. Uh, clearly, the people that are doing the governing, I don't know how much decision-making comes to him or not, but there's a lot of governing going on that has some, I mean, there's some really excellent people in some positions of authority or doing some really good work. I, I, it drives me crazy when he gets up and keeps talking about the topics that add to the division in this country. I just, I just wish he just wouldn't say it. I would be much more happy. I'm concerned that he's had three falls, three falls in an 80 year old predicts death within five years at very high probability i mean is that uh, a literal yes you, falling oh. falling is as uh uh warren buffett's uh, partner charlie munger says he he's he's going to sit in a wheelchair because fall is the major risk he has in life going forward as a centenarian uh but it also is predictive it's quite predictive of, of future trouble so i worry about that um and i'm a little offended that uh we're not allowed to know what his cognitive status is or is he I mean, it's got to be unless i'm at 65 my cognitive status is not what it was at 40 it just isn't uh i i hope it's as good as his as 80 i'd like to know what kind of horsepower he's operating with but 
it it is it is concerning it is concerning isn't it but i i look i'm concerned about putting anybody over the age of 70 in that office i think it's ridiculous we certainly yeah. have smart capable people in their 40s 50s and 60s and why can't we tap into that what is wrong with us well you know i bring them forward at my university you're forced to go into no more than half time at age 71 so why would it be the case that it is okay. mandated for professors to either retire or go on semi-retirement at 71, but you can have your finger on the you know metaphorical yeah. red button and you could be next to the grave? It's unbelievable. It is kind of, it's wild, isn't it? It's, it's uh, look, we, we've had uh, impaired people in that office before. That's the other thing. I want to keep, I want to always remind people when they go into a panic about this, Woodrow Wilson was essentially brain dead for several months. And his wife was making a lot of decisions, an unelected official in no office whatsoever. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of that. He had a massive stroke. By the way, interestingly, it was on the heels of the 1918 flu that he had. So, and uh, famous psychiatrist named Menninger chronicled some of the neuropsychiatric stuff that came out of the 1918 flu, which is very similar to what we're seeing with COVID now. Imagine oh, is that, that right? Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was a severe narcissist with bipolar disorder, you know, ran amok for many for many years and finally burned himself out. I mean, Abraham Lincoln had such severe depressions. He had an obsession. People, there's a book called The Lincoln Marriage where the author brings out communications letters documented letters that he maintained throughout the early years in the white house with his physician in springfield missouri he had an obsession that he developed syphilis from contact with a prostitute and that phys physician put him on mercury which he maintained well into the white house years the number one side effect is severe depression and lincoln's depressions were notorious where people had to take sharp you know sharp objects away from him he was pulling tad down the street one day and the and a red wagon and it flipped over. He walked all the way down Pennsylvania Avenue without being aware that his son was sitting in the street a mile up. Wow. Huge level depressions. So we've had problems in the office. I always want to warn people if they if they you know think that the modern situation is that much different. We've had problems in the past. Trust me. Hey, Drew, I, I just had a, a, a book idea for you. Right. Why don't you write a book like a medical biography of all of these the presidents? You know, presidents. I don't think It'd it's be been it's been done. It, it 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 has been done, but never collated, never put together. So it'd be very interesting. Yes, it would, that be, would a be a lot of work. That would be a lot, lot of work. Wow, that's very cool. Okay, yeah. this is a non-medical question, yeah. a legal one, but of course you've got a highly functioning brain so you can weigh in on it. We don't have mm -hmm. to only stay about med talk about medical things. Okay. Uh, what are My your parents. thoughts about the uh, you know, multiple every four-second arraignments of Donald Trump, or as I like to call him, Orange Himmler? I what I <laughs> what I don't like is that the political types have taken things to the point where we're behaving like a banana republic, yeah. whereby either the current president or the leading candidate is going to put one another in jail. I mean, you you can pretty much bet if Trump becomes president, he's going to do the same thing to Biden. This is terrible. This is atrocious. And I'm very concerned about where we've taken politics. It's just gone to some blood sport. And, and I, I just, that's my grave concern is, is, again, the division. I mean, one of the things that I admire or appreciate in Alan Dershowitz is that despite the fact that he is an avowed 
liberal. He he doesn't stop reminding us that, you know, he didn't vote for Donald Trump and he's a liberal. He adheres to deontological principles, right? He 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 swears allegiance to the constitution and therefore he comes along with complete intellectual honesty and says, "Hey, look, I may not have voted for Donald Trump, but this is not good." Why can't we get some of our common progressive liberal friends to have that kind of intellectual honesty? I, I'm I'm just generally since COVID started, I've been just asking myself, what is going on? What is happening? I'm trying to put the pieces together. I've kind of put it together a little bit with COVID. I can't understand why people cling to ideas that are diff- problematic, wrong, and add to division and trouble. I I don't I don't I don't get it. Is it just orgiastic tribalism? It, that it you know, tribalism I- for sure. I, I wanted to write a chapter in my book on narcissism on uh, periods of history where childhood trauma has been predominant. And the the biggest the biggest um, example that I came upon was the French Revolution and pre-revolutionary France. Just massive childhood trauma and abandonment of parenting responsibilities and physical abuse, all kinds of sexual abuse. And you got the French Revolution. So part of my f- concern is that uh, there is scapegoating uh, they're telling me I have to go in a second here. Oh, okay. my um, that, that, that scapegoating is the outcome of that kind of narcissistic process. And, uh, I just think we're gathering in these again, orgastic scapegoating and it's, it's guillotines. We, we, we are discharging our narcissistic rage by uniting with scapegoating experiences, scapegoating phenomenon. Gotcha. I was hoping to do a a, a more positive ending, but can I keep you on the thing for a minute just to ask you one more question for our subscribers? Yes. All right. Thank you so much, Drew, for coming on on the show. Always great to be here, my friend. Cheers.